Well, welcome to the More to the Story podcast. I am so glad that you all have come along. This is going to be a great show. I am so excited about the guests that I'm going to introduce in just a minute. But before I do that, I want to make sure you know about a few things. We have a couple of sponsors of this podcast who make some of the, the technical things happen. And one of those is Wesley Biblical Seminary, where I work, where we are developing trusted leaders for faithful churches. That means that we believe that there are churches out there who are looking for for trusted leaders who can come in and teach the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And so we have a variety of programs that are available from bachelor's to master to doctor of ministry degrees. We also have a thing called the Wesley Institute, which is a nine-month program that walks people through every book of the Bible with seminary professors teaching two-hour sessions on that designed for lay people. We'd love for you to check that out at wbs.edu. And secondly, we want to make sure you know about something coming from the, my platform, the More to the Story platform, and that is a new small group or Sunday school curriculum based upon this amazing little book, the book of Jude. 25 verses from the book of Jude are a, a six-session series of more than five hours of content looking at this little relevant book that calls on us to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And it's incredibly relevant for our time. As I've gone through and really spent two years studying the book of Jude, I'm amazed at how it speaks into our culture. So there are churches, small groups, families, um, homeschool groups all around the country that are using this little little study that I put together. And you can find that at andymillerthe3rd.com. That's andymillerii.com. Well, now let's get into our show. I'm so excited today to have on Dr. Michael Brown, who leads Ask Dr. Brown Ministries. And Dr. Brown, we are so delighted to have you. I have to say, as you get started, as we get started, I am a little worried because I think I agree with you too much. It's so good. I really appreciate all the content that you put out, your books, podcasts, videos. It's really excellent. So it's a real honor for us to have you here. Well, Andy, thanks so much. It's a joy to be with you. And I'm sure we'll find a lot of commonalities we talk today. Yeah, maybe we'll even disagree. It's okay if we do. I don't think we will, but I'm just incredibly thankful for people like you who are willing to, as I as I just described, this call that comes from Jude to contend for the faith once for all delivered for the saints, that you're doing that in a public way, resourcing the church. Um, and it's really been to like, would you just tell people, I, I've, heard, I've heard you for a while now, for a couple of years. Um, I'd love to, for people just tell your uh, brief version of your testimony. It's fascinating. Just so maybe some of my audience who doesn't know, don't know you can learn a little bit about you. Yeah. You know, and I've, I've shared it thousands of times. The good thing is it's such an amazing story that it never gets old. Amen. But God saved me in 1971 as a heroin shooting LSD using hippie rock drummer. I'm Jewish. So I grew up with no concept of Jesus. I grew up in a fairly nominal Jewish home. So even though I was bar mitzvah at the age of 13, it was more of a, a, a religious ritual than a spiritual experience. And my, my big life-changing experience at the age of 13 was going to my first rock concert, seeing Jimi Hendrix in concert and just wow. caught up with the whole counterculture revolution and wanted to be like these rock stars and emulate their lifestyle. So drugs were just starting to circulate in my neighborhood. Someone asked me if I wanted to try getting high, smoking pot. And I thought, you know, the rock stars do this, plus you're not supposed to. So that, that made me want to try it. And one thing led to another. I started using heavy drugs very early on because my body seemed to have a, a high resistance to drugs. So 
I just ingested large quantities that became part of my identity. I got nicknamed drug bear and iron man wow. and was a good drummer. I was playing with two friends in high school. We'd get high, practice with our band, go to rock concerts. That's how we lived day and night. And I was thoroughly enjoying my sin and my rebellion. I wasn't in jail at that point. I hadn't died of an overdose, although I got perilously close because of my foolishness. And my two friends, God started to draw them in. They liked these two girls whose uncle was the pastor of a little Pentecostal church in Queens, New York. The girls started going to the church. Their dad had been praying for them. My friends started going. They started to change. I didn't like it. So August of 71, I went to pull them out and tell them the thing was just stupid. But the people were so nice and loving and kind. I thought, well, whatever. They have their religion. I have mine. Let them do what they do. Mm -hmm. And the people began to pray for me. I didn't know it. I was completely unaware. But the Holy Spirit began to chase me down and convict me of sin. Wow. And I went from literally one night laying in bed, thinking how cool I was and I stole money from my own father and tricked my best friends and did all these massive quantities of drugs. Look at how cool I am to the next night laying in bed, feeling like an absolute wretch for those wow. very same things. And I didn't know it was the conviction of the spirit. I had no idea. Right. I just thought, well, I need to do different drugs so I can sleep better at night. And huh. before you know it, my eyes were open. November of 71, I, for the first time, I, I believed that Jesus died for me. I, I went back to the church and I, I believed it, but I wasn't willing to repent or change. Huh. God dealt with me intensely the next five weeks. And, and at a service, December 17th of 71, I became overwhelmed by the joy of the Lord. Hmm. Remember, I, I was into Zeppelin and Hendrix and Grateful Dead and these other bands and see them different ones numerous times in concert volume so loud you couldn't hear yourself scream here i am in this little church with a pastor's wife playing piano these old little ditty hymns and i'm overcome <laughs> by the joy of the lord and i realize this is different yes qualitatively than any experience i've ever had it's different than a drug high a music high a friendship high a kindness high a sports high this is different and i realized this must be what they call the joy of the lord amen and at that moment i got a revelation of god's love for me I, I saw in my mind's eye that I was covered with filth and the blood of Jesus just washed me clean. And he put these beautiful white robes on me and I was going out playing in the mud. And I said, God, that's it. I will never put a needle in my arm again. And I was free from that moment on. Wow. And when my dad saw the change in my life and then two days after that quit all drugs, when my dad saw the change in my life, he said, Michael, it's great. You're off drugs, but we're Jews. We don't believe this. So he brought me to meet the local rabbi. Okay. And the local rabbi took an interest in me, began to challenge me. That's why I ended up learning, starting to take Hebrew in college. That ultimately got me on the path to my PhD in Semitic languages from New York University. Yes. So that's been part of my life ever since, Jewish apologetics, Old Testament scholarship. And that kind of fuels and, and, and undergirds everything we do, our, our burden for revival in the church our burden for gospel-based moral and cultural revolution in society, and our burden to see Israel saved. And those are the three R's of, of our okay. ministry, as Dr. Brown. Interesting. That is, so the, this at some point, though, as you went back to talk to the rabbis, your dad brought you there, you, you had to make a pivot, right, toward a church at some point. Did you, or were you going to a Christian church at that well, no, time? No, I was, I was going. When, when I started, I went back November 12th of 71, 
Okay. That's when I believed for the first time that Jesus died for my sins, but was not willing to repent. So I kept going to services after that. I would go to church one day, I would get high the next. And they had several services a week, so I could go to several services. And God was pulling on me. So I was in between two worlds then. Once, once I surrendered December 17th, then that was it. I, I went to every service. If the door was open, I, I went and, and then started to just grow in my personal relationship with God alone with him. So I was in church the whole time that I interacted with the rabbi and he brought me to meet other rabbis and other rabbis and other rabbis. And, and they challenged me some very deeply. And, and I had to determine, okay, I, I know God that you're real. And I know that, that being a Jew is important and that you have, you have a calling on the people of Israel. There's a destiny, right. there's a purpose. So I must follow you and your truth and be a loyal Jew, regardless of where it leads. If it means everything I believed about Jesus is wrong, right. and I have to renounce my faith and take the shame of it and, and leave the church, then so be it. Mm. If it means that everything I believe is true, and I have to take the reproach of the Jewish community and be looked at as, as a traitor and an apostate, so be it. Wow. I have to follow you and your truth. This is, this is something I went through about three years into the Lord, just this deep crisis after spending hours and hours and hours with these well-educated rabbis. By well-educated, I mean in Jewish tradition and, right. and able to challenge me. And, and, and they were just as spiritually oriented not as I was. It, it got me to that point of crisis. And out of that, God even more deeply affirmed to me the truth of what I believe. Wow. So it's been loving him with heart and mind, not Amen. either or, but both and. Yes, I love it. And that's been a big part of what you've done then is like often part of your ministry is entering into public debates. But I imagine this has also been a very like personal, you know, friendship sort of based uh, conversations that you've had with Jewish leaders and Christian and people who are just outside of the faith in general. But could you talk just a little bit about some of the things that you've done, some of those other debates that you've entered into and the approach that you take to them? Yeah, sure. So I've, I've had the privilege of doing scores and scores of, of debates. And I, I believe, and again, this is just God's grace and calling, because you have to remember what he took me from. And right. I, I only gave the tiniest hint of the foolishness and depravity of my life. Right? I'm, I'm talking about huffing diesel gas from trucks to get high and, wow. and doing crazy things. God took that guy and raised him up as an apologist and scholar. So it's, it's, it's all God's work in, in our lives. He gets the credit. But i I believe I have done more public debates with rabbis than any human being on the planet. Wow. Uh, now, that's also because it hasn't been done that much because the rabbinic community is not keen on doing these. Uh, there are even some that say, no, we're forbidden from having those types of, of disputes. Also, through church history, at the worst times, rabbis were forced to, to do debates. And, and if they, quote, lost, then it would be fixed before the thing even started. You know, if they, quote, lost, then they, they could be exiled from a community or have Talmuds burned or consequences like that. They would be subject to listen to conversionary sermons from, from church leaders in their right. churches and things. Uh, and, and then uh, over the years, especially post-Holocaust, there weren't as many educated Jewish believers that were able to debate the rabbis in a good literate way. And so there just seemed to be a gap. There had been more traditional Jews that had come to faith before the Holocaust. And there seemed to be this, this gap with so many of them lost. So yeah. the rabbis would just demolish 
the Jewish believers who would debate them. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, by God's grace, uh, just with Rabbi Shmuley Boteach, known as America's rabbi, America's most famous rabbi, uh, he and I have probably done more than 20 debates, wow. uh, including at Oxford University in, in England. Um, I've, I've debated others like Bart Ehrman, the famous New Testament scholar yeah. and, and, and atheist agnostic, uh, debated gay activists, right. uh, leaders in, in that regard, atheists, some, some Islamic debates. And, and then within the faith had lots of debates, say on the, the gifts of the spirit or Calvinism right. or different things like that. But my approach to apologetics was not learned in formal classes. Okay. In fact, when people would say to me, you know, are you presuppositional or classical or evidential? I had to look up what they meant because I had never <laughs> learned those terms. Sure. So any debating I've done, I've, I've learned just like most things, you kind of get thrown in the water and learn how to swim. So yes. there are two principles that I came up with in doing apologetics. Uh, the first, very simple. The second, very costly. But to do effective apologetics, Number one, you need to rightly understand the other person's objection or position. Mm -hmm. Often we pass each other like ships in the night. It's right. like you punch here and I punch back there and we haven't really connected. So the best way to know that you've rightly understood the other person's position is to restate it to them okay. in your own words. Am I correct in understanding that you have this view, that view? Yes. Okay. So now we're communicating. Yeah. The second one is very costly to adequately answer the other position. You have to feel the weight of it. Mm. In other words, you need to be able to see the world through that person's eyes on some level. Now I have not tried to do this in every area where I debate, but the, the main things that I've really given myself to do say Jewish debates or moral and cultural issues, I've really tried to see the world through the other person's eyes. Now, you see, it's very costly to do that right. because you have to now be empathetic. You have to put yourself in their shoes. And that what if that challenges your own view? Right. Or, or right. what if you can't be as strong in your conviction now that you've you've seen it through the eyes of, of the others? But that's the only way you can really answer. Look, it, it would be just like you get a call from a friend weeping on the other end of the phone. They've been in a bad car accident. They think that the rest of their family members are killed. And you say, Romans 8, 28, all things will yeah. work together for the good. Oh, okay. You've done no good whatsoever. Right, right, in fact, right. you probably just alienated a, a friend and wounded them further. But if you've been through loss yourself, you realize, okay, right now they just need, they just need someone to hug them. They just need, they don't need words. They just need, right, I'll right. be right there. They just need someone to hug them. And over the months, you'll get to Romans 8, 28 and see God rebuild that life. So, for example, when God called me to, to begin to push back against homosexual activism in 2004, okay. and I saw then that this would be the principal threat to, to freedom of religion, speech and conscience in America. In fact, that it already was. Right. And it would be the one big issue that everybody had to deal with. That yes. When I was talking about it, and very few were talking about it. Of course, there were people before me. I knew, no, this is the whole nation is going to be talking about this soon. And the whole church, you won't be able right. to avoid it. So I, I had a burden to deal with the activism, but yes. I knew I had to have God's heart for the people. Right. So I began to make appointments to talk with local activists to sit and say, tell me your story. So mm. I, I could better understand their background and how they saw the church and how they saw people like me. 
I, I amassed a large library of books written by gay activists from, from books like Holy Homosexuals, you right. know, a pastor who's a gay pastor to, to queer Bible commentary and things like that. And, and I remember one night reading one book, I just put it down and I, I, I got on my knees and wept. And I said, God, I don't want to hurt people. I just right. want to help them. But I knew right. the positions that I took would be perceived by them as hateful. And so out of that, God gave me a word, reach out and resist. Reach out to the people with compassion, resist the agenda with courage. And that's marked everything we've done in, in, in this regard. So you take your stand, you, you don't water down the truth, you don't compromise it at all, but you speak with a certain brokenness, you speak with a certain empathy in yes. the midst of rebuking sin, in the midst of, of calling out differences. And, and I found in, in debates that, that when you really grasp the other person's position, uh, in fact, I, I was getting ready for a debate with Rabbi Shmuley, and he was doing a radio broadcast at that time with a, a fellow from Jamaica, and, uh, not a Jewish guy. And the guy said, well, what's your beef with Rabbi Shmuley? Why, why does he disagree with you? So I started to present his positions. And Shmuley wow. said, Mike, I don't need to show up for the debate. You do both <laughs> sides. Yeah. Th this way, people say, okay, you understand my position. You understand why I'm saying what I'm saying. So when you reject it, you reject it with substance. You, yes. you, you reject it on a level that carries much more weight. And people on the other side say, okay, he gets us. Right. I even right. had a counter missionary rabbi with whom I've interacted for, for many years, over 20 years now. If we published everything we, we've written to each other, it'd probably be several thousand pages, literally, mm -hmm. literally. Mm -hmm. So he and I were interacting once and I got a little run down. I said, hey, I got to cancel our, our talk this week. And he said, hey, get better quick because we need you. And I said, wow. what do you mean you need me? I said, because you think you're going to win me over and I'm going to be a traditional rabbi and bring people back to Torah Judaism? Because that's part of it. He said, but you understand us. You're the only one who really understands us. And we need you like telling the church who we really are. Oh, I love so, it. In the midst of our deep opposition, there's been a friendship and a trust. You know, Rabbi Shmuley's become a dear friend. I attended the wedding of his eldest daughter, flew into New Jersey just to be there for that. Wow. Uh, so that's the fruit of really understanding, uh, being an advocate for the truth, right. even when it's uncomfortable. And, and there are a million blind spots I have. There are a million weaknesses I have where, where there, there are areas where I don't excel and, and, and I do my best to learn from others and, and grow from my mistakes. But it gratifies me when I will get emails from people on the complete other side of the ideological right, spectrum right, saying, right. Hey, I've read your articles and you try to be fair. Yes. Or yes. we, I, I did a, a lecture at a campus. We couldn't find anyone to debate me. So I did a lecture on, on a campus about the church and, and the gay community. And afterwards, a guy came up to me, identified as a bisexual Christian in relationship with another man and said, I'm really glad you did this because this is the kind of tone that needs to be yes. set on the campus, despite the massive differences we had. So hopefully we can speak the truth in love. Yes. And, and that can mark what we do. I love that you're able to these two points to understanding how you enter into a debate and really getting to know the other side. And I, and I also appreciate that you're highlighting the 
emphasis on truth. One of the things is when you get in, and, and you know this better than me, of course, when you get into the other view, when you understand where they're coming from, their emotional connections, their intellectual connections, it can almost lead you to question, and it should lead you, well, am I right here? And what are we committed to? Are we committed to the truth principally, or are we more committed to our view or our institutions, whatever they have led us to be? And so I think that that's a unique thing for us to be able to present is the opportunity to go where the truth leads us and to figure out that as a foundation for what we're going to do. And you've done this like I, on a variety of subjects. Like you could have said, okay, my scholarship is related to the Old Testament, uh, Semitic languages. I'm going to stick there. But instead, you kind of started, like I, I am interested too, this idea that with the sexuality discussion way back in 2004 or 2003, you realized that this was going to be something that was really going to hit the, tr tr the, the, the church and society as a whole. Yeah, you know, I've, I've read quotes from Francis Schaeffer in 1968 so that's a year before the Stonewall riots and the, wow. the, the bursting on the scene of gay activism. It had been here before, but that's when it really burst on the scene nationally. But Francis Schaeffer is already making observations on how this will basically be a, a war on even male-female identity, Wow, uh, seeing things like that. I remember listening to James Dobson or seeing quotes from Chuck Colson, and they had been focused on these things because of the work they did and saw it so much earlier than, than others of us saw but when the light went on for me, 2004, that was one of my questions. Okay, why me? Yeah, sure. Because I, my, my academic background is not here. I don't have a particular burden to reach the homosexual community. It's not part of my own testimony. I don't come out of homosexuality. Why me? And that's when I realized no one gets a pass on this. Yes, As Dr. Right. Al Mohler said, the, the, door, the, the knock is going to come on your door, Pastor. Where do you right. stand? It, it's that's just the reality of where we are. And I also knew that God had called me to controversy, mm. that we're all wired differently. I'm, I'm not yeah, a pastor. Sure. I'm a, I've been a spiritual father to people, but I'm not a pastor. You know, there, there are some folks, they, they're just so gentle. And, and <laughs> so we're all called to different things. And even yeah. though I'll be gracious and kind, God's called me to, you know, for my head to be the tip of the battering ram that, that smashes into the wall. You know, oh. or, or my, put my face on the dartboard, you know, to get the attack. So we're, we're wired for these things. And I've, I was so burdened about the culture that now, okay, I, under, I understood the connection. But I remember yes. when Tyra Banks, uh, people wanted me to come on to talk about transgender children back in 2009. Yes. And, and I shouted to the nation, you're experimenting on the children. Now more and more, of course, are, are recognizing that and saying wow. it. But when they called me, I said, okay, you understand I'm a minister. You understand my doctorate is not in, in sexuality or gender studies or family counseling. You, they said, oh, no, no, you're the right one. And I thought, okay. yeah, probably just a big enough target to shoot at. <laughs> but it's, it's, look, we're all servants, right? Right. And, and then with everything I do, it's always undergirded by biblical scholarship. So the academic foundations, they always tie in because everything I do is going to come out from scripture and that's going to be the foundation. But, but when you mention asking questions, am, am I right about these things? That is, is what I hold yeah. to accurate. So many times we give superficial answers because we are insecure in our beliefs. Wow. And we feel threatened. So we just push back with our pat little answers because we can't dare wonder, is that, is that atheist right? Is God really there? Right, right. Is the Bible really accurate? Can I... 
did Jesus really rise from the dead? Wh whatever it is. And I don't recommend that people plunge into a thousand areas of doubt where they're struggling. Yes. But I do recommend that you become so secure spiritually, emotionally, intellectually in your walk with God that you're not threatened. Right. And that you think, hey, if I'm off here or there, well, so be it. I just want truth. Right. I just want truth. I just want to follow God and his truth. And, and probably all of us over the course of our spiritual lives make some adjustment here and there or something where we were super dogmatic, we're not so dogmatic on mm -hmm. uh, or, or something where we make a paradigm shift. But I'm, I'm not here to stick my head in the sand. Right. You know, over 50 years in the Lord, I don't, I'm not sticking my head in the sand. At the same time, uh, we're standing on a secure rock. Amen. And, and one of the things interesting as I've been studying the book of Jude is it starts off in this interesting way. It says in verse three that I had intended to write to you about the salvation we share, but I'm compelled to implore you to contend for the faith. Once for all the saints. something had happened that changed the situation. And, and this is what's, what you're acknowledging is that there's a way we're not wanting to talk about sexuality all the time. This is like, we would rather not, I'd rather talk about the salvation that we share. Instead, this is being presented to us on a regular basis. Like they're coming knocking on our door and we're, and we can either put our heads in the sand or we can respond because it's not just related to just sexuality. It's connected to a doctrine of revelation and creation. And um, it's biblical orthodoxy as a whole is tied together with a lot of these issues that come in this presenting issue of sexuality. Yeah. And, and look, we get the emails and the requests day and night from the hurting families and wow. the hurting individuals. Yes. I was talking to, to one colleague, a megachurch pastor who really seeks to avoid some of these issues and right. avoids stepping into the culture wars. I said, forget the culture wars. These are pastoral issues. Amen. The yeah. Families yeah. are struggling. You, you know how many parents right now are dealing with kids who identify as transgender out of the blue? Yeah. And, and I mean, I'm not going to get in total percentages, but, but it's quite shocking yes. to see what's actually out there and, and to see what's going on. It's, it's, it's shocking, even mind boggling. And in, in point of fact, if we avoid these things, then we're not shepherding the flock. Uh, and then I'm the attack you. on scripture yes. in, in these different ways. And, and I'm and look, struggling with this. Jude, yeah, Jude go ahead. 22, have mercy on those who doubt. Right. So there's a, there's a doubt that's rebuked like in Jacob, James, the first chapter and some other passages where it's a double mindedness yeah. where we should be resolute and we're not, but there's another doubt where God says, have mercy on those that people are struggling. They're, yes. they're not sure. Don't, don't, don't push them away, but say, Hey, come with your doubts. You have yes. permission to doubt permission to ask questions. Let's find the Amen. truth together. I've, I, I want to present something to you. That I've been saying lately, and I wonder if it's, if it's right. Or wonder what you think of it is this, is that like, I, I've, I served for, uh, for 14 and a half years as a local church pastor. And just in the last year and a half, now I've been serving in the Academy training pastors. And I love this role, but it, it was probably about halfway through my, the, my time serving as a pastor where I began to sit, think I need to have a series or significant, or even at least a short series on sexuality every year. And, and here's part of what, why I felt like that. And as I look at folks who want to avoid these discussions, they don't want to think of like, like, oh, I'll have the right view, right? I'm a conservative, Andy, believe me. Like I, I believe in the authority of scripture, but I just, I'm not going to talk about it from the pulpit. And in my view, I feel like that's almost pastorally negligent 
because it's what is being presented in our time. And, and that's what you highlighted too with the mega church pastor that you mentioned. I, I understand like it's a very complicated issue, but because it's so present in our time, it, it seems to be something that we have to address. 100%. Uh, again, let God be the, the judge of each individual servant of his, Romans right, right. 14. But from my perspective, yes, we are being pastorally negligent. Now, someone might say, hey, I'm an expository preacher. And I just go through scripture. And as I go through it, then, then whatever we come up on, that's what we deal with. Fair enough. But if it's taking you 11 years to get through Ephesians 1, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I wonder if, you're, if your people are really getting the whole counsel of God in right. that respect. Just, just find out how, if you got a good-sized church, how many men on your church staff are struggling with pornography. Right. Let's not even right. talk about the congregation. Right. How many men on the church staff are you yourself struggling with pornography? Okay, let's. How about we start there? These are real yeah, sure. issues. Uh, talk to all the young people, even if they're in, in church school, talk right. to all the young people and find out how clear headed they are on, on gay transgender issues and how much they're dealing with this and how much they can present what scripture says. And I, I would say your average leader would be utterly shocked. I talked to a fellow in Charlotte. He was ex-gay. He had a counseling ministry, okay. but he was a professional counselor and was looking for clients because this was his livelihood. So I said, man, it must be a godsend to the churches here to know that you're here locally. Yeah. Because we always get requests. Hey, I, my son wants counseling. My husband wants counseling. Yeah, yeah. I want counseling. Where do we go? And to have someone local, think your local church, your pastor's not equipped to do everything, to have someone to refer him to. And he said, no, he said, when I go to the churches, they, they tell me we don't have this problem in our church. Oh, my goodness. So that's that's what's out there. I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. I, I think I was often re regularly reminded that when uh, a man would request an appointment with me, I could pretty much guarantee it was going to be to deal. And I was thankful. Praise God. Yeah. Come in. Well, but generally dealing with with pornography. I mean, that's that's a, the foundation of a lot. Of stuff. OK, I need to transition. because I really want to talk about your new book. And yeah. one of the things I've so greatly appreciated about you is that you're willing to speak to the political situation in the United States of America. Now, I'll admit my own timidity at times to address this because I have seen such an amazing block. It's just in personal conversations when I come up and I and I start to share how I'm thinking politically. And it just is like, oh, man, I just don't want to bring bring this up. And even other well-known Christian content producers like yourself are, are probably avoiding some of these topics, but you've been willing to get right in there and you've dealt with it, I, I believe, in a fair way. So your recent book that's just come out is called The Political Seduction of the Church, How Millions of Americans Have Confused Politics with the Gospel. So Dr. Brown, tell me what is it that motivated you to go after this subject? Yeah, it's, it's another book that I didn't want to write, <laughs> but I felt that I had to write. And just a quick word, I, I do not like writing about politics, writing about LGBTQ issues. I, I'd much rather be working on a commentary in the Bible right. or writing a faith-building book or writing something on, on revival. Right. And these topics in many ways are, are defiling. I mean, that I, I don't mean that that you read stuff that's unclean in itself. I, I wouldn't do that. Right, or look right. at images that are unclean in themselves. I wouldn't do that. But I mean, it's, it's just, it's of this world. It's mm. of this age. And it's just, 
it's a dirty system in many ways. And you're talking about issues of fallen human beings. And, and when I started my daily radio show in 2008, live talk radio, uh, I, I didn't know how much I would be political. I knew okay. I'd talk yeah. about moral cultural issues. So I, I tried to find what was right. And again, for me, I, I'm spiritual first. That's my orientation. Yes. But because the spiritual impacts the moral, I'm going to talk about moral as well. Well, moral intersects with cultural and cultural intersects with political. Yes. So that's why I'll talk about political issues. I'm not a political pundit. Right. I'm not one of those that, that's going to weigh in on everything that's happening. You know, this massive bill being passed by the Democrats, inflation, global warming. I haven't really said anything about it because these are not areas of specialization or yes. things God called me to focus on. But with the Trump presidency, yes, uh, I was writing about Trump or related issues almost every day because he was so closely related to evangelical Christians. Right. And, and because we became so largely identified with him, especially white evangelicals. Mm -hmm. And uh, as time went on, I, I opposed him during the primaries because I thought we could do much better with any other candidate. And I right. absolutely did not trust him. Right. I figured he's using us. He's playing us. Right. Uh, like, and, and we don't even see it. But then I had friends got close to him and said, Mike, he's sincere. He's he really does want to stand with us and somehow believes in the rightness of our cause. Right. And then when it was him versus Hillary Clinton, I thought, OK, it's uncanny that he won, that he beat right. all these other candidates. I mean, we're used to it now, but it was utterly laughable to think about yeah, it sure. back in the day. And maybe there's something to this. And I felt strongly when it came to abortion, when it came to religious freedom, when it came to standing with Israel, when it came to pushing back against Islamic terrorism. So major things, existential issues, I thought. He's going to do a better job than Hillary Clinton. So I right. hope I hope he keeps his word to us. But I have concerns because he's like a bull in a china shop and the recklessness could be costly. Yes. Well, he he stayed true to his word. Right. He surrounded sure. himself with evangelicals. He had people like Mike Pence and Mike Pompeo, other strong Christians around him and so on and kept an open ear. One of my friends was very close to him, would say, I just got off the phone with Trump, spent 45 minutes talking and here's what's going on. And. So I thought, okay, he could be dangerous, but yes. right now it seems he's doing more good than harm. As things got close to 2020, I started to get concerned. I wrote a book in 2018 entitled Donald Trump is not my savior. Okay. An evangelical yeah. leader speaks his mind yes. about the man he supports as president. So I, I wanted to shout to the world, Jesus, Jesus, he Amen. died for me. I, he rose from the dead. He's my all in all. I worship him. I honor him. My heart, my soul, my life belongs to him and him mm -hmm. alone. Mm -hmm. I vote for Trump. Let's put him yeah, in two amen. different, complete, <laughs> very, different very worlds. short statement. Yeah. 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 Two completely different worlds. And I asked in that book, is our relationship with Trump a match made in heaven or a marriage with hell? Wow. Wh which, which is it? Now, remember, I wrote this as a Trump supporter. Right. As we got closer to the 2020 elections, I began to get more concerned. I voted for him a second time. Again, right. same principles, except this time, with the hindsight of he's kept his word, moved the embassy to Jerusalem for yes. religious freedoms, appointed three conservative justices to the court and all this. So I, I, I voted for him more enthusiastically the second time than the first. But as we got closer and closer to the elections, I started to get more and more concerned. Right. I, I saw the degree 
that that we were merging the gospel with politics. Yes. I, I saw a rise of an unhealthy Christian nationalism with which merges the kingdom of God with patriotism and, and wraps the gospel in the American flag. I saw an unhealthy looking to Donald Trump as the only man who could save America. Right. I saw all of these charismatic prophets and I'm charismatic myself yes, yes. To, to a person, all the public voices saying Trump will have four more years, et cetera. And then when the votes came in and it seemed he had lost, fine. Even if you believe it was election fraud, the frenzy, the, the, the intensity of concern. I watched Christian leaders, Andy, on Facebook, on live streams, cursing wow. those that they believed had stolen the elections, using the imprecatory Psalms, the Psalms of cursing, cursing other people. And, and I, I mean, I, I was shocked. It's, it seemed that Christians' lives had fallen apart if Trump didn't get in. I heard the prophets reiterating, we, there will be four more years of Trump. Joe Biden will never right. be inaugurated. Watch what's going to happen. This is going to shift, and this is going to shift, and this is going to shift. So- and when you say prophets, let me jump in there. It, you, you, you've helped me with this because this is a world that I'm not as familiar with, that um, people who engage in prophetic words, and we affirm that as something that comes from scripture, but you've monitored these various things. And people can maybe Google you like uh, to find out some of this or find just go to your website to find this out. But you've monitored that and like the ones that have seemed to have legitimacy behind them. And, but here this is like people making prophecies that something's going to happen that according to the constitution at this point just couldn't happen. Right, and, and if you back it up, there were a few stray voices prior to 2016 who prophesied Trump's election. Yes. And, and they even put out disclaimers, hey, look, I don't like the guy. I, you know, they were yeah. so shocked by it. That got my attention. It seemed legit and God was saying, hey, Look at it. I'm going to use a totally unlikely man, someone who doesn't even know me, a totally yes, unlikely yes. man. Well, now it just became everyone getting on the bandwagon. Yeah. It, it became this just, uh, I don't know if it's we like, were seduced It's a good by, prophecy. Like it's going to yeah, win. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if they were seduced by, by front-running power, having access to the White House, or it was just right. something in the air, you know, demonic deception, or just right. I, group yeah. affirmation, whatever it was. So- a friend and I, another colleague, charismatic colleague, we became concerned that a lot of people are going to crash and burn after this. So I started putting out a safety net in advance and, and be, before all this crashed because I, I knew what was coming. Wow. Well, to my shock, once I began to say, OK, look, Trump was not really it didn't have even if you believe there was a steal, he, he's yeah, not yeah. going to be inaugurated. Joe Biden's going to be inaugurated. There's not going to be a military that comes in and, and removes Biden and installs Trump. It is not going to happen. I got a severe backlash wow. when I began to address the QAnon conspiracy theories that I, it was like a cult among yeah, Christians. Sure. I thought, how, how did this happen? Yeah, this is the political seduction of the church right in front of our eyes. It's like we sold our souls. Mm. And, and at that point, my, my Facebook followers were maybe it's about 590,000, something like that. The moment I publicly addressed the, the, the Trump prophets and said, okay, you're wrong. We're not attacking you. Acknowledge it. Let's find out why you got it wrong and let's move forward together. When I uh, dealt with that and began to address QAnon conspiracy overnight, 10,000 people gone Wow. With vicious, angry, you're not saved. You're of the devil. You're not wow. a, you know, you're weak. You're. It, it was extraordinary. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, shockingly ugly stuff.
Yeah. And I get attacked all the time. I'm not concerned about me. That's, that's fine. I'm concerned about what's in people. Yes. I'm concerned about the state of the body. So I wrote this book to say, here's how we went off. Yeah. Here's how we got, here's all the good that Trump did, but here's how he went from, from president to, to, to political, uh, to superhero, to political savior. Mm. Here's mm. how we got into an idolatrous view of Donald Trump. Here's, here's how we got into an unhealthy Christian nationalism and right. merging the gospel with American politics. Mm -hmm. And we should be involved politically, but that it's different than a marriage mm -hmm. between the gospel mm -hmm. and politics. It's, it's very, very different. And it can be subtle. I not only address the false prophecies, but I explain how we got there. This is, the, this is how false prophecy arrives. I look at the anatomy of seduction and how we got pulled in. And, and then, in fact, as I was writing the book, I told my wife, Nancy, something doesn't feel right. And then I put the second chapter of the book is, is called, yeah. it's about the transcendence. The church of, the of church. Jesus is transcendent. Yeah, yeah. I, I felt I had to put that first. This is our calling. Amen. This is our lofty, beautiful calling. This, this is who we are. I, I remember when one of our daughters was getting married and still living at home and, and you know, the, the gown and the whole bit. She was a horse rider. She didn't go out riding a horse in her gown. Mm. And, and, and she didn't wow. have a cup of coffee in a car that's bouncing around. You know, she put that gown on and that gown was going to stay pristine. Mm. We must see the high and lofty calling of the church. We must see how we're in this world, that we are really not of it, which means that the church itself does not belong to a political party. It transcends politics. Right. Right. It works within, but it transcends. So having that vision... And I, I come to the end of the book and I look at what I published in 2018, which was Donald Trump is not my savior. And then 2020, I, I published Evangelicals at the Crossroads. Will we pass the Trump test? And in mm. the first book, I laid out seven guidelines to follow. In the second book, 10 guidelines. I said, so let's look at the 17 guidelines that I laid out and basically said we failed on 15 out of 17. Wow. So if we get these right, the next time around, we won't fail and we can have the influence that the, the church is going to have. Uh, I, I believe the book will stir up a lot of controversy, but it'll be healthy controversy because the other thing is there's a narrative from those on the left that those who voted for Trump, white evangelicals in particular, are all white supremacist insurrectionists. Mm -hmm. There's now this mm -hmm. guilt by association. And there is a caricaturing of Christian nationalists that if you love Jesus and you're a patriot, now you're a Christian nationalist. So there's uh, the errors that we made as conservative followers of Jesus on the one hand, and then the caricaturing of those errors by those on the left. So I challenge that false narrative. I yeah. push back there as well, but I believe it's, it's essential. We yes. plan to get this out uh, well ahead of the 2022 election. So September with those coming in, in, in 2022, and then well, well ahead of 2024. Yes. I believe if we don't get it right, that, that we will affect our witness for a full generation. Already, right. we know of many, many, many who have left the church, maybe not left the Lord, but left the church because in, in their mind, it was Trump and Jesus. Right. That, that our association became so deep that it was now this baggage. We believe in yeah. Jesus and, and we voted for Trump. And if you want to be welcome here, you have to you have to embrace both those things where it should be Jesus. Yes. And you've said That's several times here 
are we, even though you, you distinguish yourself from those who have gone in what you're describing as too far. And I like to think I kind of line up with the type of perspective that you have too. Here's the question though, is like a lot of folks, maybe somebody like a David French uh, would say, I was, I told you this is what's going to happen. Um, and were we wrong? This is were people like who represent your view wrong to do this because we're leading this to a bad place. I and mean, this is what they were warning. I still contend that the best decision to make in the moment was what you've described. Like we have clear options. We're going to many Christians voted against Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden and for a policy perspective. But never, ne nevertheless, we get into this place now where we see some of we, we, we couldn't even see this possibility coming along the way. But right. how do you look at the past now? I mean, were, was it wrong? So uh, I, uh, David French and I have interacted some. I quote him a bunch of times in the I book. I saw that, yeah. Uh, I sent him uh, the manuscript. He's really interested in reading it. I haven't heard from him yet, but I sent him the, the PDF probably a couple of weeks ago, and he received it with real interest. Um, so I, I believe he was right and he was wrong. Okay. So here are my feelings. If I had to do it over, right, based mm -hmm. on the knowledge I had then, I would vote for Trump in 2016 and 2020. Okay. Uh, I would also even, well, okay, I tried to do this throughout. Whenever I would say anything good about Trump, to, to the fa it, it maddened his supporters, but I would always say, although I have concern about XYZ. Yes. When I, I voted for him, I said, all right, here's why I'm voting for him, but here's where things could get off the tracks. Right, right. right. So I, I might have given the warnings even more clearly. And I know I said we can't get caught up with election fever. I really had to do my best not to because it was so all consuming. Now, I had someone very close to Trump who who's clearly saw the issues, spoke the truth to him all the time, regularly corrected him. But he saw the potential of how God could use him. Yes. On the other hand, my wife, Nancy, who voted for Trump in 2016, said I cannot vote for him in 2020. I wow. will not. He's destroying the country. He's destroying the church. And she was weeping over it. And I had this wonderful, holy tension with <laughs> with a, a dear friend close to Trump yeah. telling me about the possibilities for good and that they still had his ear. And my wife seeing how we had become we had become like Trump. The church had mm. our social media pages were as yeah. ugly as his tweets. I mean, we we were so divided, nasty towards one another, and so right, caught right. up. So uh, I, all I can say is throughout, I, I support it but I had concerns. I've publicly said, now that the damage has been done, there are always concerns about his recklessness, right? Right. So I, I said, for example, a wrecking ball is great for demolishing a house. It's not good for, for renovating a room, right? right? So we had a human wrecking ball in Trump. And again, I was very public on all these things as a Trump supporter, raising my concerns. And I wasn't trying to hedge my bets. It was just, this is realism. Right, right. With January 6th, I believe, is the fruit of his recklessness. I don't believe it was an insurrection. I, right. I don't believe it's the way it was played out. But it was one of the darkest days in our nation's history. The fact that it happened, the fact that the Capitol was stormed, the fact that people were afraid for their lives. And I look at Donald Trump's tweets leading up to that. I look at what happened at the rally that day at his participation. And I hold him morally, not legally, but morally responsible. And now that is a weapon that will be used against us for decades to come. 
right. the, the January 6th and, 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 and the caricaturing of all Trump supporters and, and the caricaturing of his presidency, etc. So I believe his recklessness opened a certain door. And when I saw how wrong the church got this, uh, I truly believe that if we did not look to him in an idolatrous way, and if he had humbled himself and just become a more decent human being, that he'd be right. in the White House right now. That's right. what I believe. So I've publicly said it's not a matter of being a fair weather friend, but I do not want him to run in 2024. And if it was 2024, him versus a, a Democratic candidate that I thought was totally destructive, I would sit the vote out, vote for someone else as a public statement of conscience, as much as I would say he may be the better alternative. At this point, I, I need to make a public statement. So in hindsight, I believe David French's warnings were prescient and accurate. However, I disagree with him about being a never Trumper. Yeah, interesting. You you are you are getting going on that line, right? Because <laughs> in other words, I get hit good. from both sides. I get but that's how it has to be. And I, I appreciated like I I would often share some of the content that you had because I felt like it was addressing these matters, like the concerns that I have. I think a lot of people have. Like I I would e even go as far as to say like, look, the man didn't say he's he said he's. Uh, not repented to me that's essential for salvation like so we have to uh, nevertheless like i'm not electing him as a christian like i'm not and so we're not putting him at that level um there's several there's a i would like for you just to talk real briefly about the idea of, of nationalism because that term is thrown out thrown yeah. around a lot now and i think a lot of folks are trying to figure out well what we mean by nationalism christian nationalism yeah so i have a colleague who writes regularly at the stream right also writes stream.org which was founded by james robison uh, john zamirak he is catholic conservative and absolutely brilliant mm -hmm. and and he is as sharp a writer as anyone that i know and he and i are on the opposite side of the christian nationalism he says take the term and use it rightly wear it and use it rightly mm. and and don't let anyone make it into something negative. Mm. That's his position. And he, he argues for it brilliantly. I quote him in my book, in fact, saying, here's, here's his position. Uh, I have the opposite view that there is truth to the term. In other words, there is such a thing as Christian nationalism, and it's unhealthy. Mm. Uh, it was manifest, for example, at the, the Jericho March, some of these events that took place right before January 6th, at the end of of, of 2020, the beginning of 2021, where you've got speakers like with the American flag dropped around them, you know, quoting gospel scripture yes. and, and this merging of America's purposes and, and the kingdom of God. So nationalism in the sense of I love America mm -hmm. and I believe we have to think of America's interests first and then we can be a, a nation that can help the rest of the world. OK, yes. I understand that every nation has to do that. Right. And as long as we have an honest appreciation of our nation, we, we, we look at the good with the bad right to this moment. Okay. I, I'm, I'm all for a healthy patriotism and, and there's a certain pride in the American flag. You just, you know, world war II alone, if that's the only thing we ever did yeah, was, sure. was help defeat the, the, the Nazis and, and the, the Japanese imperialists, then so be it. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, we, we are citizens first and foremost of a heavenly kingdom. Right. And our loyalty is first and foremost there. And America is a fallen nation like every other nation on the planet. We have more Christian history than many, but we are a fallen nation like every other nation on the planet. We are full of sin. We are full of murder and violence. We're the world's leading exporter of pornography. Mm. We have epidemic drug problems in our midst. 
we have a horrible history with race and, and with dealing with Native Americans. So we're a fallen nation like every other nation that needs redemption. And, and, and the goal is to win Americans to Jesus through the gospel. Uh, some have said that we love America so much that we don't even love Americans anymore. That we, we've, lo we've lost sight of that. Wow. So Christian nationalism is, is now saying that our loyalty to Jesus is also our loyalty to America, mm. that our allegiance to the kingdom of God is also patriotism. Right. And, and that taking up arms to protect our families is, is a Christian duty and sacred calling. And now these things get merged together. And if you dare question it, well, were their founding fathers wrong? Did they mm. get it wrong? Would you have fought on the side of the British? And so that's how it's postured. So it, it's, it's dangerous. Again, yeah. what my colleague John Zmirak is advocating is let's, let's own the term and let's not let the world define it. And then even there, we'd have some differences. But he argues for that brilliantly. My thing is, no, the, the term, forget how the, the left is using it. Forget how the media is using it. There, there is an unhealthy association. With, let's look at the substance of it, not the right. naming. And, and the substance is what we must reject. Mm. And once more, it is the merging of the kingdom of God with patriotism. It is wrapping the gospel in the American flag. I can assure you that Roman Christians, so Christians in the Roman Empire in the year 100, did not confuse loyalty to Jesus with loyalty to Rome. Right. I can assure you that, that they did not have as a slogan, make Rome even greater again. <laughs> uh, I can assure you that Christians in communist China do not confuse loyalty to the state with loyalty to Jesus. And wow. that their great goal is not to make China even bigger and greater. Their great goal is to see Chinese people come to Jesus and the nation Aye. bow its knee. And when, when things get merged together, it is very unhealthy. And then you have God's party versus the devil's party. Right. Because Republicans hold to many of the moral values that are more important to conservative Christians. So it's right. The Republicans, God's party and God's man in the White House versus the, the Democrats and things. And <laughs> it becomes very unhealthy and destructive. That's what ends up happening so often. And I think we end up getting in a position where we say, like, our faith is connected to a particular institution. And, and in this case, as we're talking, it's the institution of the United States of America, which, as you said, has done some good things and has done some terrible things. And we need to own up to all of that. I, I see this even with churches um, so that uh, the, the, I, I don't know what the proper term would be for it. But if we're in a church, like loyalty to Jesus is equated then with loyalty to a particular denomination. So my friends in the United Methodist Church right now are making a decision like to separate from the church that is openly ordaining lesbian, a lesbian bishop and moving against what they have co covenanted together as a denomination. So some are saying, no, we're going to be out. But some have said, no, no, I, I need to, like my loyalty to Jesus is connected to my vow to be a United Methodist minister. In my tradition, some people say my loyalty to Jesus is connected, is lived out through the Salvation Army. The same thing could be even like an academic institution, like the schools I went to are very important to me. But those institutions can fail. 
and do fail. The same thing, and, and obviously it's a bigger issue when it comes to a whole nation of 300 million plus people. So like I, I can see some of these, like as a tendency to want to come together with the groups and the institutions that serve us, that help us, but at the same time, we have to be able to divide that from the goal of the church universal. Yeah, and look, I can't remember voting Democrat in my life if I did, it would have been decades ago when it was Jimmy Carter. We got a born again Christian, you know, yeah, running sure. for president. Um, but I, I don't remember even voting back then in those early years. But I, I voted exclusively Republican for many, many years, as far back as I can remember. But I'm a registered independent. Yes. It was just a statement for me. I'm not judging anyone else. Right, but it was right. a statement of conscience for me to say that I, I do not belong to either party but then I vote accordingly. So let's say you gave me a choice. Okay, uh, lay out your strategy, the 10 most important things the church can do to impact America and bring about lasting change. I would have getting involved politically on the list, but probably down around nine or 10. Okay. That that'd be way down in terms of the strategies and the weapons that God has given us. The political world is, is a corrupt fallen world. It, it's, it's full of compromise. It's, it's full of, of power. It's full of corruption. It's, yes. it's full of you know, good old boy syndrome and working the system. So good can come out of it. But if I put my trust in that system, I'm now leaning on the arm of the flesh. So mm -hmm. we'll be involved and let, let Christian leaders be raised up to run for political office. And let's find yes. godly men and women from school boards, you know, up through president, yes. Yes. by all means. And let's pray for our elected officials. Let's vote our conscience. And let's lobby. But, but this, it, it's almost as if in the last elections that the whole church became like the Family Research Council. So that's Tony Perkins, FRC. They do a great job at what they sure. do. That's their calling. That's who he is. Right, they're, right. They're, they're in there talking to the political leaders. They're lobbying in Congress. They're understanding the bills. They're helping educate the church, especially at times to vote here, voter guys. Okay. They do what they do, but we all became consumed. We all, this right. is our, our major focus. And it seemed that, that where we stood on Donald Trump became more important than where we stood on Jesus. Yes. I yes, mean, I had yes. people say, if you vote for him, you're not saved. If you don't vote for him, you're not saved. Wow. So that is when we get things out of proportion or we judge someone that's not in our group. You're not saved. By the way, when it comes to the Methodists, the handwriting has been on the wall for many, many years. Yes. And, and while I really can respect people trying to work for unity because that's important to the Lord, and while I really respect those that want to try to preserve something that, that has a history, right. I believe the big mistake was that people didn't separate many, many years ago. That's right. Because it's we knew where this was going. Yes. We knew that there was no debate on where this was going. And the righteous thing, you cast your vote and then you walk out. And when enough walk out together, now you have your new denomination formed immediately or you join with with someone else. So I may be more iconoclastic in my views, but. Well, I think a lot of people feel that way now. There, I had on my podcast, Rob Rinfro, who leads the Good News Movement, which has been an evangelical group for 50 years, trying to help the United Methodist Church politically. But one of the leaders in that tradition was a man named Bill Henson, who in, I believe, 2004, he's a pastor of a large church, in the, one of the largest United Methodist churches in the country in Houston. And he, he said, he called at that point, after one of their uh, general conferences, said it's time for an amicable separation we're two different groups and people called him out for that no no we need to stay in the fight and here we are 
18 years later where the where the Methodist Church is going yeah. to. And in my denomination too, like I think that's what's happening is it's becoming clear. It's a global denomination in 130 countries around the world and there are pockets of Salvationists who are calling for uh, an embrace of the LGBTQ agenda, and look, it's 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 time to say like the way that we move forward here is that we either are something as a group or we're not, and yeah. and that means accountability, and that is where maybe it seems iconoclastic, but it might just be true accountability. But I yeah, think you're it, right. It, it, it is. It's it's inevitable. And again, it's not being troublemakers. It's it's not it's it's not being proud. It's simply being realistic, honest, b- before the Lord. Yes. And I, I really trust, I'm just looking at the clock and yeah, I know we've got to wind down, but um, I really trust that people who read this book will have kind of a, a personal awakening experience. Those that, that did get caught up in a wrong way, you read, it's like, oh, how did I do How did that happen? Right, right, right. And then here's how we move forward. Others would say, I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. I always felt like this. This guy's saying what I feel. But either way, I believe it's going to be an important read. I've sent it to, to reporters, you know, journalists on the left as well that have an interest. So, and, and I tell some of their story and then differ with it. Yeah. So we're, we're laying it out as honestly as we can. But political seduction of the yeah. church, uh, folks, it, it comes out September 6th, so about to come out. Folks can pre-order it on my website, askdrbrown.org, or just over on Amazon. And, and I believe it's going to be an important eye-opening read. May, may the Lord help us to get this right. Yes. The Political Seduction of the Church. Check it out. And, and check out Dr. Brown's ministry, askdrbrown.com. There's .org. A lot- .org. Oh, the org. Forgive me. Forgive me. Yeah. yeah, you might get a medical doctor helping you there, if that, that, that side. Nevertheless, let's make sure to, to take a look at this so we're prepared for what's coming. Um, thank you so much for your minute. Let me ask you one more question. It's uh, not a political question, not, not even a theological question. Oh, it could be a theological. It, the, the title of my podcast is More to the Story. And we, people who um, maybe listen to this podcast may have heard of you, but is there more to the story of Michael Brown than we typically know? Is there something that maybe is a hobby that you do you don't get to talk about very often? What's more to the story of, of Dr. Michael Brown? Well, um, last night, uh, it's late at night, the smoke detectors in our house started going off. Okay. Which meant that my wife and I now had to figure out why they were going off and, and um, change the batteries or do whatever had to be done or blow the dust out, etc. Well, Nancy has her own tool closet. Okay. Uh, one third of our garage is filled with Nancy's outdoor landscaping equipment, tools, and things like that. Okay. Um, when I help her and she's sending me to get her a tool, she has to describe it for me because I, I don't know tools well. So as I'm on the ladder trying to figure out how to put the smoke detector back on, uh, she was saying it, the wife does like when the husband at least can do something handy. Uh, so uh, she once told me that if it was back in the days of cavemen, I, I wouldn't have made it. Wouldn't have survived. <laughs> So I am not a handyman. Uh, I said to her, honey, look, I got some really good gifts in some areas that I'm just lacking in the other. Uh-huh. However, I do believe that I remember how to do it this time, okay. which she told me is what I said last time. <laughs> but I, I said, normally it takes me a few times to get it right. So I am not a handyman. And, and whatever gifts I have, I have some conspicuous lacks on the other side, but I'm hoping I'm 67 and I'm hoping to improve on that. 
Oh, I love it. Moving on to perfection, as John Wesley would say. That's uh -huh. good. Oh, th thank you so much, Dr. Brown, for your time. It means a lot to us. I appreciate you and the ministry that you have, and particularly headed into 2022 and 2024. Uh, this stand that you're taking is one that is strong, but I pray that God will use this and the book, The Political Seduction of the Church. Check it out, friends. Mm -hmm.